You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's May 5th. I'm Rebecca Robinson. And I'm Linnea Arden. On today's show, a Brooklyn-based artist is putting together a digital exhibit of NFTs made by people in prison. It feels like a step in the right direction of using blockchain technology to disrupt systems that are in place to debilitate incarcerated people and people of color. We look into the ethical issues. And we talk with an expert on cryptocurrency about the mayor's goal of bringing cyber wallets to everyone in New York. There's an idea that people who are homeless, people who are poor, people who are perhaps undocumented immigrants could use this as a substitute for bank accounts. Back in the physical world, we visit the new fashion show at the Met and a mobile barbershop in Brooklyn that provides a safe space for Black queer folks looking for haircuts. Getting our hair done is just like such a cultural thing for us. All this and more on this edition of Uptown Radio. But first, the news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A more than 1,000 point drop for the Dow and steep declines in other major market indices underscoring growing concerns about the U.S. economy. Here's NPR's Raphael Nam. It was one of the ugliest days of the year in Wall Street. Both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq fell sharply a day after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by the most in over 20 years as it intensifies its battle against inflation. The Fed plans to raise interest rates even more, and that's going to raise borrowing costs across the economy, from mortgages to bank loans, all coming at a time when Americans are already paying more for just about everything. The big fear is that the Fed will be too aggressive and tip the economy into a recession. The Fed believes it can slow down the economy without sparking a deep slowdown, but investors are not so sure. Rafael Nam, NPR News. As the U.S. Supreme Court investigates how a draft opinion on abortion was leaked outside, counter protests. What about the little baby, Joyce? Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked today about what the Justice Department might do if the high court follows through on the draft opinion and strikes down Roe v. Wade. If the law changes, we will address appropriate next steps at that time. But what will not change is our commitment to defending the rights of women and all Americans. The Senate is expected to hold a vote next week to codify abortion access in federal law, but in an evenly divided chamber, the Democrats won't have the 60 votes they'll need to overcome a Republican filibuster. Heavy battles continue in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol. Many civilians trapped at a steel plant still. The remaining forces in the city are still holding their ground, but describe the situation as dire. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby describes a Russian operation in Donbass. In the Donbass region, Uh, we would still assess that uh, the Ukrainians are putting up a very stiff resistance and that the Russians have not made the progress that we believe they expected to make by this point. Kirby also says the U.S. is not offering specific intelligence to Ukraine on the location of Russian generals. First Lady Jill Biden will spend Mother's Day along the Slovakia-Ukraine border meeting with Ukrainian mothers and children who fled their country. Here's NPR's Scott Detrow. Jill Biden is headed to Romania and Slovakia, two NATO allies that border Ukraine. Each of them has taken in hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees and also served as a staging ground for NATO's military support for Ukraine. During the visit, the First Lady will tour schools that have taken in Ukrainian refugees. She'll meet with U.S. troops stationed at a Romanian airbase and also visit with Romanian and Slovakian government officials. The First Lady is the latest in a string of high-profile U.S. officials who have traveled to Eastern Europe in recent months. President Biden visited Poland in March. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. 
For Columbia Radio News, I'm Clara Sophia Daly. The city's Rent Guidelines Board will hold a preliminary vote on rent increases at a meeting tonight. This could mean an increase of 2.7 to 4.5 percent on rent-stabilized one-year leases, and up to 9 percent for two-year leases. This would impact the close to 2 million rent-stabilized apartments in New York City. The final vote is in June. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. Mayor Eric Adams has seen his approval rating decline, especially on his handling of crime. A new Quinnipiac poll found that 54% of New Yorkers disapprove of his public safety approach. Mayor Adams has made lowering violent crime a top priority of his administration. But a polling analyst said that last month's subway shooting in Sunset Park likely influenced the decline in confidence. The poll also found that a majority of the respondents disapproves of the mayor's policy on homelessness. This afternoon in Coney Island, a police officer was stabbed in his hand and a suspect was shot in the leg. Both were transported to local hospitals. Two New York Police Department supervisors have confirmed the existence of a secret police database that tracks New Yorkers suspected of involvement with gun violence. The news was first reported by Gothamist. Anti-surveillance advocates are concerned about the list. They say it could trigger unequal law enforcement tactics. The state of New York is reminding everyone that they have one year left to get a new form of ID. Starting next May, travelers will need to show what's known as a real ID to get on a plane and travel around the country. Some rain is expected this weekend, but do not be dismayed. It will, start, it will still be in the 50s, and next week's forecast has sunshine in the cards. This is Clara Sophia Daly, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Rebecca Robinson. And I'm Linnea Arden. If you live in a rent-stabilized apartment, you may soon be paying more. Tonight, the Rent Guidelines Board will take a preliminary vote exploring the largest possible price increase since 1990. As Julian Abraham reports, the news has um, landlords eager and tenants anxious. Historically, when the Rent Guidelines Board raises rent, it's around 2 to 4 percent. But this time, it could be anywhere from 4.5 to 6 percent for renters with one-year leases and 7 to 9 percent for two-year leases. This doesn't sit well with Williams Bezak. I think the affordable housing conversation in New York um, overall is broken. We need a whole new paradigm um, for the way we think about housing. Spizak is a member of the Queens Community Land Trust and an outspoken housing advocate. There are almost one million rent-stabilized apartments in New York City, and Spizak says the tenants are largely vulnerable. So, you know, we know that rent-stabilized tenants, you know, uh, tend to be uh, lower-income um, New Yorkers they tend to be um, people of color um, in, you know, um, uh, communities that have either been historically redlined or, you know, disproportionately disinvested in. So we know that at the end of the day, like these rent increases are going to impact, you know, the people who um, need affordable housing the most. Spizak says a lot of essential workers who were hailed as heroes in the earlier days of the pandemic live in rent-stabilized apartments. On the other side of the argument, landlords like Aaron Weber and his family, who own a property management company called Weber Realty. My family owns uh, 12 units in East Harlem, but we manage a little over 400 residential units across Manhattan and a little bit in Brooklyn. 
From his perspective, the idea of a rent increase is welcome. Out of the whole range of possible rent increases, Weber is hoping for the highest one, 9%. Weber says for much of the pandemic, his family business has been losing money. Some of his tenants could not make rent. Um, it's been hard. We've been taking it day by day, case by case. Ahead of the vote tonight, the Legal Aid Society of New York called for a total rent increase freeze. In a statement, it said, Any increase that would siphon away money for groceries, medical care, or other essentials to pad landlords' pockets is both unconscionable and immoral. The Rent Guidelines Board did not respond to a request for comment in time for air. The preliminary vote is scheduled for 7 to 9 p.m. tonight. After tonight's vote, there will be public hearings throughout spring. Then, another vote in June will mark the final decision. Julian Abraham, Columbia Radio News. The Department of Transportation is trying a new safety campaign. Shock. It's putting up $4 million worth of billboards showing a blurry image of a man falling backwards as he's hit by a car. It's part of a citywide effort to combat the sharp rise in pedestrian fatalities. Amy Fairchild is the Dean of the College of Public Health at The Ohio State University. I asked her what a fear marketing campaign is and whether they work. So a fear campaign is something that um, stimulates a sense of a threat in the person that sees it. And it might be a a sense of threat that they're going to get a disease and suffer, that they're going to die, that they're going to suffer some kind of stigma or shame as the result of engaging in a particular behavior. Do they work? They do work. The empirical evidence is pretty clear. Um, Fear does work to change behavior. If you can use a fear campaign and give somebody that sense of, well, if I just slow down, if I just stop smoking, if I just stop drinking, then I can avoid some of these consequences. It works a little better, but um, it's, it's remarkably effective. So in this kind of case where it has to do with traffic and pedestrian safety, you wouldn't really have that stigma or scapegoating associated with that you would find in cases where you're using it for disease, for, for example. Well, that's, it. that's exactly right. So if you look at some of the history of the kinds of fear-based campaigns that have worked, and Australia is famous for having some really um, grisly fear-based campaigns when it comes to distracted driving, for example, they almost always show consequences to the, to the person driving, to other people in the, in, the, in the car. These are people that the driver cares about. So it, it gives a sense of how is this going to affect you more immediately. You're going to feel guilt and shame for having been responsible for the deaths of your your friends. I want to ask you a little about the images, though, because you just mentioned these grisly ones in Australia. And I feel like in comparison, when you look at these billboards, it's kind of just like a gray facade. You know, it is a man getting hit by a car's coffee's kind of spilling everywhere, but they don't seem that scary, for, for lack of a better word. Do you think this is fear-inducing enough? My initial reaction is, whose fear is it trying to, to trigger? For me, it, it makes me, as a pedestrian, feel a sense of fear. So it's suggesting to me, I need to be careful when crossing the street because people are, are speeding. I don't know that it's speaking to the, the vehicle driver. We don't even see the vehicle driver in the image, after all. So it's focusing us on the pedestrian. Are these 
usually immediately effective? Like, do you see when you, you know, when you say these campaigns do work, is it some, is it something you see right off the bat or do we kind of become numb to the images over time? If you just think fear is, fear alone is going to work, then, then we're not doing our, our jobs as public health officials. Now, whether this particular campaign is, is going to be one of those things that begins to edge us forward or whether we need to see something a little bit more focusing on the driver remains to be seen. But it's, there's no question it's an issue that, that we as a society need to be more aware of and drivers need to be warned about. So my question here is, this a, is this a sufficient warning to, to the driver? Do I have a sense of what's going to happen to me if I don't slow down and I, and I hit somebody? Amy Fairchild, the Dean of the College of Public Health at The Ohio State University, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. There's a new project in the works that will allow people to own digital artworks made in prison. An online gallery based in Brooklyn is turning those artworks into NFTs, which allows anyone to buy and sell the digitized drawings and paintings. Some of the money would go to the artists in prison, but advocates for victims want to say in deciding who profits off this. Reporter Clara Sophia Daly has been following this project for months and delves into some of the ethical issues this project raises. There's a new immersive digital art gallery in the works. It's called A Night on the Yard with Stars and features artworks made by 12 artists who are incarcerated at Ironwood State Prison in California. The gallery is the brainchild of Damian Hodges, an author who writes novels based on his upbringing in the Cabrini Green housing projects of Chicago. He's serving a 26-year sentence for armed robbery. And he says NFTs are an opportunity for giving people in prison like him the same sense of pride he feels from publishing his novels. I've been down, I've been in, in prison for like twelve the past twelve years, and I've seen an assortment of talent. Hodges often saw people in prison with him making amazing art and throwing their work in the trash, and he realized NFTs could be a way for those people to get recognition and earn some money. Inmates at Ironwood make less than one cent an hour. Much of the money they earn goes back to the state or to victims in a process known as restitution. For Hodges, who worked as a tutor, that leaves him with $9 a month. So I'm like, wow, like this is a way, first off, push the, the envelope as far as, you know, helping out the incarcerated and, and you know, the whole prison reform ordeal that's going on right now. You know what I'm saying? And it's a way that, you know, people can like make some money, you know what I'm saying? And, and be profitable and really put their passion first. You know what I'm saying? Hodges has a friend he met through a prison pen pal initiative, Elise Swopes. She's a digital artist based in Brooklyn. Swopes has done collaborations with brands like Adobe, Apple, and Adidas. If you open Adobe Premiere on your computer, a digital self-portrait she created comes up. She also sells NFTs and has made a lot of money doing so. Hodges suggested the artists and poets inside the prison could try selling their work as NFTs too. Swopes said yes, and the idea for the NFT gallery was born. The artists would have an opportunity to earn money and also learn about cryptocurrency, NFTs, and blockchain technology. As of right now, the plan is to sell art and get money for those artists. But not everyone is happy about the plan for getting the money to the artists. 
Keith Franz is an attorney who's worked as a victim's advocate for the past 40 years. He's also on the board of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We believe that, that victims have a right to be involved in every step of the process. So if someone is in jail, they should be notified um, that there is some outside source of income that they are receiving. Uh, you know, then the courts can decide uh, what, if any, benefit the prisoner would be entitled to. And, and I think that's a sensible way to approach it. And Fran says whether funds are earned and what's done with the profits needs to be carefully considered on a case-by-case basis. If there is a civil judgment, for example, against the individual, then um, that those funds should be going to the victim to reduce that judgment. Um, it shouldn't be a, uh, an opportunity for prisoners to uh, earn considerable amounts. Legally, incarcerated people are allowed to profit off the sale of art and books as long as the content is not related to the crime they're convicted for. This legal precedent is based on a New York law enacted in 1977 after the serial killer known as the Son of Sam received high-priced offers for the rights to his story. But the law doesn't stop incarcerated artists from selling works unrelated to their crime. And you can find art made in prison on eBay and Etsy, where paintings and drawings are on sale for anywhere from $20 to $50. But even Franz is in favor of people who are incarcerated making the most of the years they have inside, including the possibility of earning money. We've seen instances where families are vehemently opposed to anything that might benefit a uh, a criminal who's been convicted. Uh, But then as time goes on, their heart changes and they feel sympathetic to the perpetrator and want to help them. The artworks created for this gallery include poems written on pieces of paper and tattoo-style drawings. Artists created the works in their cells and each piece was shipped out in a manila envelope through the prison mail system. Once outside the prison walls, the artwork will be scanned and then minted, a certifying process which gives each work a unique line of code. It will then be put in an immersive gallery where viewers can digitally navigate around a 3D space to look at the art and potentially buy it. Funding the project is Isaac Wright, a world-famous NFT photographer who goes by Drifter Shoots. He has a soft spot in his heart for incarcerated artists because he was one of them. While photographing a skyscraper in Ohio, he was arrested for trespassing and held without bond. He has given $70,000 to fund the project. I think that they should be allowed to do that just like anybody else should. They make artwork. They're human beings, too. Um, You know, the prison system has clouded our minds to where we almost look at incarcerated people as less than human. And that's not true. There's the most brilliant people you will ever meet when you're incarcerated, and um, they deserve to have a fair chance, too, you know, especially because, you know, the prison system's working them for pennies on the dollar, and they have nothing to show for it when they get out, hardly ever. The Night on the Yard show has come up with what organizers hope will be a fair solution. 50% of the profits will go to incarcerated artists, and 20 will be donated to organizations that support victims. It's not yet clear when the gallery will open. Clara Sophia Daly, Columbia Radio News.
Next in our commentary series, Uptown Radio reporter Emily Schutz talks about the challenges of moving to a new city. I've never not lived in Florida. That is, until nine months ago when I moved here to New York. Back home, I'd spend my days at the beach or walking through the woodsy trails near my college campus. I didn't realize how much Florida was the butt of many jokes until I moved away. I wasn't nervous about moving to New York, but I was concerned about fitting in. I didn't want any person on the street to know that I wasn't from here. I think the need to blend in was triggered by TikTok. New York-based influencers would say things like, only real New Yorkers know, or transplants walk too slowly. It was all in good fun and not really harmful until I got here, and I realized I felt out of place. I was afraid to stand out. On the subway, I was too nervous to check Apple Maps in case the person next to me saw and figured it out. Asking for directions was out of the question. I remember one time grabbing to the pole of the car for dear life when the train came to a sudden stop. I lost my balance, brushed against someone accidentally, and as a result was verbally abused by a random man. Lesson learned, no more stumbling when the train stops. It's not even that I necessarily wanted to identify as being a New Yorker. I just didn't want to be bullied by strangers for not being one. But I started to see the beauty of being someplace new. In Florida, we don't have seasons. During my first autumn in New York, I saw the leaves change to bright red and in the winter heard them crunch under my feet. I'd never even seen snow until I moved here, nor had I experienced temperatures below 45 degrees. I'm embarrassed to admit that for the first time at 21 years old, I got on the ground in Riverside Park and made a snow angel. I grew accustomed to the hustle and bustle in the city and having access to anything and everything. I began to seek out all the things that make New York, New York. I walked across the Brooklyn Bridge, saw the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, the World Trade Center, picked up some Levine cookies, got tea at the Plaza Hotel, not worth it, and got drinks at a speakeasy. Now, I'm starting to see New York as my home. I'm more confident on the subway, and I know where I'm going, most of the time. If I don't, you'll find me with my phone to the lowest brightness possible, checking which stop to get off. Some things never change, but I don't feel like I'm pretending to know what I'm doing or where I'm going anymore. I'm a New Yorker. All I had to do was give it some time. Emily Schatz, Columbia Radio News. Schutz says she got an internship in the city and will be sticking around for a while longer. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Linnea Arden. And I'm Rebecca Robinson. Our reporter Clara Grunet covers the latest fashion exhibition at the Met. And NYU's David Yermak discusses the mayor's plan to embrace cryptocurrency wallets. These stories and more coming up, but first, these headlines.
For Columbia Radio News, I'm David Marquez. Russian forces have breached the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, Ukraine. The factory is the last part of the besieged city held by Ukraine. Intense fighting has broken out inside the complex. The Ukrainian government estimates that 200 civilians remain trapped inside the factory. Hundreds of civilians have been evacuated from southern Ukraine in recent days. Analysts say Russia could escalate hostilities on May 9th. That day is the anniversary of Nazi surrender in 1945, known as Victory Day in Russia. The World Health Organization says 15 million people have died because of the pandemic. That global number is 10 million higher than previously thought. Almost one-third of the uncounted deaths were in India. A severe early outbreak of the Delta variant occurred there last spring. The WHO estimates that the pandemic killed 4.7 million people in India between 2020 and 2021. New Delhi has disputed those findings, putting the death toll at about 480,000. Most experts say that the government's numbers are a significant undercount. The WHO figures figure include COVID-19 deaths and indirect deaths due to pandemic disruption. Senate Democrats say they will bring forward legislation to secure abortion rights at the federal level. A leaked Supreme Court decision draft revealed that Roe v. Wade is likely to be overturned. The decision could trigger blanket abortion bans in several states and heavy restrictions in others. The bill is almost certain to fail since it's unlikely to overcome a Republican filibuster. Stocks tumbled today, one day after the market's best session since 2020. The S&P 500 dropped by more than 3%, and the Dow was down more than 1,300 points. The Fed said yesterday that it would raise its benchmark interest rate by half a percentage point, the largest increase since 2000. Markets rallied after news broke that the interest rate hike would not be as steep as feared. But continuing uncertainty erased those gains today. High consumer demand and supply chain shocks have brought inflation to a 40-year high. The latest inflation data is expected next week. David Marquez, Columbia Radio News. Mayor Eric Adams has doubled down on his campaign promise to lead New York through a digital transformation. In a speech in Los Angeles on Wednesday, the mayor reiterated his commitment to expanding cyber wallets for New Yorkers. David Yermak is professor of finance at NYU Stern School of Business. He says cyber wallets and cryptocurrencies can be used to broaden access to the financial system. A cyber wallet is essentially an account on a computer network where you could hold a type of money, maybe US dollars or maybe some other type of coin, even something like Bitcoin. And the real intent of these is to give financial access to people who don't have bank accounts, who don't participate in the regular financial system because they don't meet the qualifications, whether they're income or wealth qualifications or very often documentation problems. How might it impact New Yorkers? with these barriers? How might it help us circumvent um, those barriers that you mentioned? It's an interesting problem. There's an idea that people who are homeless, people who are poor, people who are perhaps undocumented immigrants could use this as a substitute for bank accounts. But I think very often there's a naive belief that you can just onboard them. But many of these people won't have the documentation that's required by law. or won't have access to it. How accessible is this technology? Often you need a smartphone. So ironically, the number of people who don't have bank accounts is far greater than the number who lack smartphones. So there's there's a lot of the unbanked who are nevertheless not unphoned. And you can bring in a number of people into the financial system 
who are essentially not banking the way that regular people bank. But often this is by choice, that there are some people who don't open bank accounts because of privacy concerns, because they don't trust banks, they don't like the way that the government regulates banks and so forth. How would you explain the importance of crypto to maybe an average person on the street? But it really is an advance in security and speed and accuracy of payments. Um, if you owed money to me and wrote a paper check, which you still might do in the United States, it would take a couple of days for the money to travel from your account to mine. And this really could happen in a matter of seconds. And the reason it takes so long is that the old system is so clunky and there are so many people benefiting from charging fees for not updating it. So a lot of people have you know, stakes in maintaining the status quo it's very much a 1960s system. How has Mayor Adams, you know, been moving New York um, towards embracing crypto and embracing these kind of cyber wallets? You know, I've heard a lot of talk, but I've seen almost no noticeable action. You know, when he took office, he made a big show of taking his first several paychecks in Bitcoin. And I said that it's the same as him just cashing his paycheck and buying Bitcoin. I'm not sure what this really means for the city. But the reality is the regulation is not at the city level. It's at the state level and the federal level. And there's really not much that the mayor of New York could do one way or the other, except perhaps cutting taxes. Professor David Yermak, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. That was David Yermak, professor of finance at NYU Stern School of Business. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Rebecca Robinson. And I'm Linnea Arden. Saturday is the opening day of the spring fashion exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It follows one of the year's most talked about fashion events, the Met Gala, earlier in the week. The new exhibit explores what curators call the emergence of a distinct American style. Claire Grunet went to the Met to figure out what exactly American style is and what's distinct about it. For fashion lovers, the Met Gala is the most exciting night of the year. Oh my gosh, the Met Gala. We have to go. Lauren Guerre is a student from Illinois who traveled to New York for the gala on Monday. I watched the Met Gala from a construction metal pole. She literally climbed a pole to see the celebrities. Today she came back to the museum, posing in a homemade ball gown consisting of a pink corset dress with layers of green fabric and flowers. So I'm, I have this crazy goal of being so on theme with the Met Gala and my looks looking so good to the point where people, where I gain a huge following and people are like, Anna Winter, invite her to the Met Gala. Inside the exhibition was buzzing with excitement as well. The museum's historical collection of period rooms has been transformed into snapshots of movie scenes with mannequins in designer clothes, staged by American movie directors such as Sofia Coppola, Regina King and Martin Scorsese. For instance, director-designer Tom Ford redesigned a room from the 1800s. In the room, mannequins are mid-fight, swinging sabers and feather boas, dressed in glittery ball gowns. The installation is inspired by the Battle of Versailles, which wasn't really a battle, but a notorious fashion show held at the Palace of Versailles in 1973. The show pitted French designers against American designers in this epic haute couture confrontation, which according to Tom Ford, re-established American fashion as a global force to be reckoned with. Most of the exhibits tackle social issues. Others were just for spectacle. After all, the show was sponsored by Instagram, and executive Eva Chen was at the opening. I could personally attest to the fact that it's very Instagrammable. 
But most importantly, this exhibit is a magnificent amalgamation of the untold stories in our history that have defined American style. After the show, on the steps of the Met, I still wasn't sure if I fully understood what American fashion is. So I asked around. Like shorts, kind of thing. Um, yeah. Although I feel like shorts are coming back, aren't they? I don't know. Like, what is an American outfit? I don't really know. <laughs> what? How would you describe American fashion in a few words? Ralph Lauren. That's two words. <laughs> I don't really have a definition of American outfit fashion. Apart from jeans and baseball caps, American style seemed hard to pin down. When I asked Lauren Guerre, the Met Gala enthusiast, how she would describe American fashion, she told me. We take trends that are popular in other places, and then we kind of copy them, but then we kind of slap our own identity on them and say, yep, we did it first. This aspect of American fashion may be changing, at least if it's up to the Met's newest spring exhibit. They aim to give credit where credit is due. Clark Ronald, Columbia Radio News. With rents so high, it's never been tougher to start a small business in New York City. That can be especially true for new businesses with limited access to capital. Rebecca Robinson has this story on one black and queer barber who has found a solution by giving the salon a creative spin. Turning onto Dean Street in the Brownsville neighborhood in Brooklyn, you see some of the usual sights. People strolling, talking on their cell phones, kids playing pickup basketball in the park in the middle of the block, and cars stand parked along each side of the street. Sticking out amongst those cars is what looks like a lemon yellow moving truck. And I wanted to paint it all black, but everybody was just like, no, leave it yellow because it just stands out. And I think that it was a great idea to just leave it yellow because people now know what to look for when they're like coming up to the truck. Kenji Delva owns a truck called the She Can Cut Mobile Salon. My name is Kenji, so it's kind of a play on my name. Delva has built the salon into the back of the truck where the cargo is normally held. A floor-to-ceiling glass faces the back, and another window on the passenger side features the shop's name and logo, a Dwafe symbol, a traditional African comb that symbolizes femininity, care, and hygiene. On a recent Friday morning, regular customer Anthony Demetrius settles into the barber chair and is offered a drink. So, we have the lavender. The lavender was very sweet last week. I think this one's less sweet. Okay. okay. Delva has been cutting Anthony's hair every other week since last August. They don't have to talk about his hair. She knows what he wants. The inside of the salon is small, but cozy, with black and white subway tiles. There's a gold-framed round mirror that reflects the black and gold barber chair in the middle of the space. On the shelf next to the mirror, a eucalyptus-scented candle is burning. Anthony says one reason he comes here is because Kenji can do a sharp line. You'd be surprised as to how many barbers can do a fade, but they can't just do a, do like a straight, sharp line around your head. Delva takes the clippers and runs them along Demetrius's temple to create the line design in his hair. He says as a black gay man, barbershops have always been a challenge, sometimes even a source of anxiety. I've been in many, many, many barbershops over the years where I felt as if I kind of had to switch up a little bit or 
be like completely silent so that my gay doesn't show since you know getting our hair done is just like such a cultural thing for us until a year ago delva was working a corporate job but she says the job wasn't creative and she was bored i decided to just quit my job to figure out what are some things that i could do to make myself feel like i am not working for somebody else she'd always cut hair for her friends and family she always enjoyed it and thought she might make it a profession. Also, as a black queer femme, she hadn't always felt comfortable in traditional barbershops. Barbers would suggest cuts that just weren't for her. So when she decided to open her own shop, she wanted to create the kind of space she would like to go to. Finding that space was another matter with New York rents. Then she saw some mobile shops and was hooked. To have this space means well, for me, it means financial security, creative expression, um, safety, not only for me, for also for my customers who have like had bad experiences and like other shops that, you know, like aren't curated to like the queer like experience. When she opened the mobile salon two months ago, Delva had a few regular clients. Since then, business has been growing steadily. The more people see the truck and are telling other people about the truck and seeing a lot more new faces. Like today I have like three new clients and I know people are and I'm excited to meet them. And the salon does attract attention just parked on the street. I didn't know what it was. I'm like, what is this? At first it was just like a yellow truck with a hole in it and I'm like, what is that? Trinae Moran is a visual artist who lives in the neighborhood. She says she liked the creative take of a barbershop on wheels and her last few visits to other barbers hadn't gone so well. And like the cut wasn't bad, but it it didn't it did it was a little hard for me. It was like it wasn't it wasn't very feminine. So I was just like that's not going right. So with the referral from social media, she went to Delva salon. She liked it so much, she brought her son there too. One challenge that comes with owning a barbershop in a truck is limited access to additional space. So Delva sets up the shop next to a public park. Customers can wait their turn at a picnic table. There's also a public bathroom nearby. Trinae Moran also appreciates that the business is in full public view. Because it's just showing like all those kids that's going to the park to play basketball, handball, whatever, like just hanging out in a the park. They're seeing somebody like in that same space working. Issa Abney is another regular at She Can Cut. He works in finance and he says when it comes to the salon, he can drop the front that he has to put up during his day job. I can come be my like nerdy black gay self and like with a messy beard and Kenshi's gonna take take me as as I am. He says coming to the salon is also a way to invest in his community. I also am like a firm believer in like supporting like black queer businesses, right? Um, like you have to create the community that you want. Delva is modest about her role in the community and her business is still very new. But so far, she feels she's serving a need and making a living. It me like i'm not trying to be an influencer or anything but uh <laughs> i also would like to inspire other people to see that it is possible to have different types of ownership um and also see that it is possible to just like do something different anthony demetrius is just glad he found delva he says he feels vulnerable getting a haircut with the barber close to his head while the clippers are buzzing to enjoy it he has to feel comfortable it's kind of like therapy in a sense, you know? Um, you know, you, you pay a therapist to make you feel good and you pay a barber to make you feel good. Delva already has her eye on the next location for her salon. For now, it's still across from the park at 2299 Dean Street.
Rebecca Robinson, Columbia Radio News. Next in our commentary series, Uptown Radio's Julian Abraham tells us about the most important 20 minutes of his day. My daily routine is pretty standard. I eat breakfast, drink coffee, get to the gym if I'm lucky, and go to class. Then, at the end of the day, when I get back home, I sit on a small red and blue cushion, light incense, pick up a wooden stick, and hit a brass bowl. Then, I sit in silence, and for 20 minutes, stare at the wall. When I'm done, I have a more reasonable sense of perspective and find myself worrying less almost instantly. Today, sitting meditation is the backbone of my life, and once, it helped me escape from a very dark place. When I was 18, things were not going well. I won't get into too much detail, but let's just say it was pretty far beyond the usual mental health issues that teenagers often have. I had no plan for after high school either. I couldn't do anything competently except play the drums, so my loose plan was to go join a band, but it was impossible. Just getting out of bed every day was tough. On a typical day in my senior year, I slept through my alarm, drove my parents' car to school without permission, and parked illegally in a teacher's parking spot. I walked into my comparative world religions class 30 minutes late. Talking to the class was a man I didn't know. He didn't look like the usual teacher. He was wearing light wash jeans with an unbuttoned flannel shirt. He was sitting on a metal classroom chair, comfortable and relaxed. He said he was a monk, and Buddhism wasn't a religion as we knew it. He explained how sitting meditation was fundamental to the Buddhist tradition, and to help us understand, he would lead us through an exercise. He said, sit upright in your chair and pick a spot about six feet in front of you, and softly gaze at it with half-closed eyes. He asked us to breathe in and relax on the out-breath. Every time a thought comes in, just say in your head, oh, that's thinking, and go back to the breath. For the next few minutes, I made an earnest effort to try my best. During the sitting meditation, there was an argument in the hallway that broke out outside of our classroom. It sounded like a teacher reprimanding a student. Normally, this would trigger a response in me, choosing which person's side I want to take in the fight. But that didn't happen. I just went back to the breath. After about 10 minutes of sitting and breathing, for the first time in a long time, I felt I was able to think without annoying distractions or anger. The rest of that day was a lot more pleasant than the days had been lately. I rushed home after school and did a bunch of research on meditation, mainly using Wikipedia as my source. I just knew it was going to be my thing, even though I did not implement it right away. The next few years were tough. Again, I don't feel comfortable getting into too much specifics, but I will say that I had clinical-level depression and anxiety disorders, and they were causing some serious problems in my life. But if I was having a really down day, if I could muster up the strength to confront my thoughts, I would sit and practice meditation for 20 minutes. The more I did this, the fewer bad days I had. Soon enough, the bad days only came once in a while, and eventually, almost never. I was able to finish university, something I never thought was possible. I wound up working in media, and my career actually started to come together. I was able to do my work in a creative way and solve problems calmly. The deeper I got into my meditation practice, the better things seemed to go. Fast forward to now, I do 20 minutes of meditation every weekday, and the effects are amazing. 
But in case it needed to be said, I'm not perfect. I procrastinate sometimes, drink too much coffee, don't stretch properly after the gym, and still sometimes get kind of angry, like if someone cuts me off in traffic. But I went from barely being able to operate in society to a place where I have a fighting chance at a good life. And for this, I'm so thankful I discovered meditation. Julian Abraham, Columbia Radio News. As the semester comes to the end, we wish Julian all the peace in the world. Well, that's it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Our executive producer today was Sarah Yokobaitis. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Lucy Grindon. Our day reporters were Claire Gornet and Julian Abraham. Director Elliot Schiaparelli led our studio production team with Chantel Destra and Emily Schutz. Our web editor, David Marquez, got this stream live to the web. Claire Sophia Daly and David Marquez produced the news. Senior editor Mark Gilchrist and assistant editor David Newtown led our copy team. Our instructors Sally Herships, Robert Smith, Ben Shapiro, and Haley Zhao advised our staff. I'm Rebecca Robinson. And I'm Linnea Arden. Uptown Radio is live on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Until next time, you can always find us on uptownradio.org. Stay tuned for a short sonic treat after the show. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening. How did I choose to come to New York City? Well, how does anyone choose to come to New York City? It's a city full of dreams. Buddy and actor Corey Terrell discusses his life on the Upper West Side. I don't care if you're an actor. I don't care if you're a contractor. I don't care if you're a construction builder. You should 100% people watch because people here in New York City are so intriguing. I feel like every single day I see something crazy. Crazy as in crazy beautiful, too. I was walking through New York City during the summer in one of the store windows was a beautiful rated r nudity show projected with earphones so people would sit in the audience with earphones outside looking into store windows of beautiful models and i had never seen anything like that and i was like i'm not in lancaster county anymore you are listening to uptown radio from columbia radio news thursdays at 4 p.m